Welcome to Shades of ABA with just Adrian today. Miss um, Tiana and baby Danny had some things to work out. So it was just be me and our lovely guests that we have on the show today. Um, we have Dr. Maya and Dr. Margot, and they will definitely be introducing themselves. And Dr. Ross, uh, Dr. Denise will be joining us here in just a little bit. But um, do you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves to our audience and give them a little inkling as to um, what we're going to be talking about today? Awesome. I'll go first. My name is Dr. Maya Hernandez, and I completed my PhD um, in 2019 at Western with um, actually um, Dr. Margot and I were in the same um, lab together under Dr. Ross, who was our mentor, Denise. Hard to remember to call her that now after so long of <laughs> calling her Dr. Ross. Um, and I uh, currently um, work at Lake Michigan College as a psychology instructor and um, we have, myself and Margo and Denise have been collaborating a lot on writing, um, working on different articles on income inequality um, and other um, issues kind of relating to that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Dr. Hernandez, I'm also in Michigan. I don't know if you knew. I'm in Detroit. I'm on the other side of the state. So where are you located right now? So I'm usually in Kalamazoo right now, right now, I'm actually recording from Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, just like a random side thing, but I'm usually in Kalamazoo and um, yeah, I remember I listened to your early podcast where you introduced yourself and you mentioned, I think you went to Central. I Michigan, did. Go to and Central. you played soccer there. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I was a big soccer player growing up and yeah, okay. you talked about all your injuries. I was like, Ooh, like I feel that. So oh, I, to you for my name, killing I it. Just, I just moved, and so we're doing a lot of lifting, and my knees are screaming at me, screaming at me, but um, I'm glad to have another Michigander <laughs> next to me on, on the show today. Um, Dr. Margo, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I also went to Western Michigan University. Um, as Maya said, we were uh, peers in, uh, with Dr. Ross's guidance, and uh, essentially the paper is about income inequality and behavior analysis and how we can work, um, better work and be effective um, change agents for individuals who ha um, have that background and who are receiving our services. Awesome, I can't wait to dive into this because I think um, ABA, economics, income equality, things like that can go a long way. So I'm so excited to dive into this. And last but certainly not least, uh, we have Dr. Denise Ross with us. If you would like to go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is Denise Ross, and I um, am have been in behavior analysis now for about 25 years. No, a little longer than that. Um, and I um, did my master's and doctorate at Teachers College at Columbia in their program, and then went on to be a faculty, faculty member at some different institutions. But I was at Western Michigan where I was the advisor for these two lovely women who are here. And I am currently the chair of the Institute for Urban Education for the University of Wisconsin. Awesome, thank you so much guys. Well, let's just dive into it. Um, I, the way that I was able to reach out to you guys is that I'm actually in the Social Justice and ABA Facebook page. And um, Dr. Hernandez, you were doing an interview for the book chapter that the three of you um, co-authored and authored together. 
So the very first question that I have is just what even sparked your guys' interest in looking at income inequality and how ADA can assist or help out with bridging those gaps? So my interview came later. Margot um, actually was the first one with the interview, and she's the one that got us that connection. So I don't know if you want to take that one, uh, Margot. No, go go ahead. It's fine. <laughs> we were, um, well, Margot, because she's so awesome, um, was approached by um, Jacob um, and Michelle with respect to participating in writing a book chapter. And so she's the one that really connected myself and Denise um, to that and our work together at Western really focused on um, literacy and working primarily with populations um, that were um, underserved or disadvantaged, um, which we kind of, the term economically disadvantaged that we um, define by um, being at or below the federal poverty level um, as a family. Um, and so a lot of that work really got us um, working with those populations and we're all interested, our whole lab, um, apart from the two of us, actually were very interested and motivated to work in that area. Um, and so we were really happy um, to share our experiences and some tips for those, um, especially as we're seeing these changes um, and these movements towards social justice issues um, in our field, um, really talking about our experiences and how people can start getting involved if they also have an interest in that area. Awesome, awesome. Um, so Dr. Ross, what is your experience, if any, with um, income inequality? Um, so my personal experience is that um, I got to see it in my family. I got to see what the differences were with members of my family who had an opportunity to attend schools in districts that were well-funded versus districts that weren't. And it really made me have an interest in um, using my career to um, help alleviate some of the issues that I saw that came from living in and attending school in communities that did not have access to the same opportunities as other communities. Um, from a career perspective, once I got into behavior analysis, I always had that interest, but I began to see how people, behavior analysts were working in this area and were improving outcomes for kids and um, just began to apply it. And then eventually came to the place where um, I came to Western Michigan and hoped that there would be students who would have that interest as well. And we could kind of spread that, that interest beyond. There are lots of people maybe analysis who are interested in it, but it's not quite as much of a focus as it used to be, I think. And so um, it's been great to work with, um, with, with Maya and Margot and the other members of our lab and people within our field who are interested in it. I definitely think as, as we are making this shift, uh, like you were saying, Dr. Hernandez, um, towards more social justice and ABA, you have to include um, income inequality and pay inequality, right? Um, do any of you watch The Explained on Netflix? No? So The Explained on Netflix, super excited to expose you guys. Um, it's, a, it's a show. I am an information junkie, right? I love random information. I don't do trivia, but I'm like, learning information so I can go to trivia nights and not <laughs> feel like I don't know anything, right? But The Explained is a show that explores a variety of different topics from racism, sexism, to cricket, to video games and the history of video games. Um, and they had an episode on the income inequality gender pay gap, right? And so we can just start there. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts 
thoughts, Dr. Margot, um, on this particular question. So what they were saying was the reason and where the pay gap starts to happen is when women start to have kids. Um, they have to, they have to medically take that maternity leave and things like that. And then the higher ups that are in like your C seats and executive officers um, positions are like, well, a man doesn't necessarily right ask me in 2021 what that looks like if my partner is going to take maternity leave he will <laughs> but what is what does that look like for a man and needing to stay and not take two to a year off um and with pay with that um so we can first just kind of start at gender and i'm sure there's intersectionality within that but what are your thoughts as to where does it start for women versus men and pay inequality in their careers? Does it start at the beginning, middle, and somewhere in between? Well, I, uh, this is just my personal uh, opinion and thought. Uh, by no means is it uh, you know, necessarily thoroughly researched to where I have data to support this, but um, my thought is that it doesn't just start when a woman has a child or when they take medical leave. I think it starts earlier than that. Um, you know, given that we are in a patriarchal society and oftentimes we've been left out in terms of the work that we can do and the level we can get to, whether, especially in behavior analysis, whether we can be leaders um, in the field and, and, you know, really at the, be at the top level. I'm not so sure that it just starts when a woman, you know, has a child or is pregnant and is getting ready to go to medical leave. I think it's sooner than that. Um, I know that within, you know, Within our lab, we were really lucky to have Dr. Ross because I think she prepared us to have those considerations and really think about when you're out there and you're applying for jobs, you want to make sure that you know what you're looking for and that you're you know, receiving the pay that it is deserved. And if you don't, then you have to be an advocate for yourself and ask for what it is that you want. Now, that doesn't necessarily just mean you know, financially, it could be other supports. Um, you know, thinking about where you want to go and how you can advance within that field or that company or that organization. So I think we kind of got set up for success in that way. Uh, but I want to say before that, I didn't really know that I could just ask for more. And I didn't realize how much more other people had because they came in demanding it, wanting it, until I started to, you know, negotiate and ask for things. And I was fearful, of course, where I'm like, oh, am I going to lose it? Because... I asked for more, but I've definitely learned that if you don't ask for it, you're not going to receive it. Um, so to answer your question, I think it starts way sooner than at that point in time for a woman. Um, you know, even just by being born a woman versus a man in our society, you have certain uh, privileges as a man that a woman does not necessarily. Definitely. I just saw something today. Um, again, information junkie, random facts just spew out of me. 60% um, of women never ask for more. They take what is offered. Um, and me personally, I, the one time that I asked for more money, I was denied. Um, now I was okay with that because we had unlimited PTO, we had all these other supports, right? But I can also feel as if in the next position that I get, whether it's with my company or with a different company, if I ask, am I going to be discouraged? Um, because we say ask, 
right? Ask and you shall receive, maybe, maybe not. Um, but then when you do ask, you get that negative reinforcement and how do people stay encouraged, especially people of color who already, you know, and we can kind of dive into this. Um, I think one of the things that we as people of color are raised or the thought process is that we should be grateful for this opportunity for this job because we are somewhere that a previous generation could never have been because of the social and economic and racist and all the other issues that people of color experience. So, and I definitely experienced this being a millennial versus my, my parents' generation of how we advocate and how we, we make um, awareness of this issue. So, um, Dr. Maya, is, is that your experience that not only can people be discouraged just being a woman versus a man, but also particularly women of color? And have you had any personal experience in that? Yeah, I definitely have had, I would say, personal experience with respect to friends and colleagues, um, not necessarily myself personally. Um, I know at you know, early on when I, I started off with my master's with a, um, being a BCBA at autism centers, um, not going to name any names, of course, but there were people coming in and we were very open about sharing how much people were making and um, women coming in, friends of mine with more experience, a higher degree, um, being offered less and not asking for more um, compared to other um, male colleagues who were also at the same autism center. Um, similarly, when we look at even some positions, when you look at, um, for example, registered behavior techs, um, oftentimes, and especially in our field, we have more women in those positions and men um, typically um, a lot of centers are really looking or motivated to hire men because they can sometimes help in situations with older um, populations or you know stronger populations depending on um, size and problem behavior and whatnot and so even offering better hiring packages for um, males in in those positions to really encourage um, getting more male applicants um, for those so I definitely have seen it. Um, I know a lot of places have really focused on um, kind of designing and having systems set in place for um, not allowing those kinds of practices with respect to having pay scales based on experience um, plus education, um, which I think are great to make sure people are starting at an equal um, level. Um, but I feel similarly as Dr. Weo with respect to my own um, uncomfortability with asking for more um, and being feeling like I should just be grateful for being in this position. Um, my first position, you know, being a psychology instructor straight out of finishing my um, PhD, being just so grateful to be in that position and, um, you know, not feeling comfortable asking for more, even though um, I, I'm worth it, you know? <laughs> right. You are always worth it. Like, know your worth. I think that's really. Your, that foundational piece. And one of the things, my, my personal experience, especially in the ABA world, right? Like we talk about um, registered behavior technicians, knowing their worth and, and knowing what they bring to the table because these companies would not be functioning without our RBTs, okay? Because we're not doing it, you know? Um, 
but also in different sectors of ABA, there is a lot of income inequality going on. Um, and we can we can dive into this with women. There are your white women and then your BIPOC women. And speaking engagements, there's a lot of income inequality when it comes to trainings and speaking engagements. And one of the things that we were finding, um, actually, it was a recent experience that I had at a conference um, asked me, invited me to come speak, said they would flight me out. I didn't have to register for the conference, but I wasn't going to get paid for the conference. But another Black BCBA who was also offered an invited speaker was offered to get paid, but I was not. And had me and that Black BCBA not been in community, not been in, in constant, consistent communication, you know, we would not know these things. And we talk about um, conferences and organizations and things like that um, and paying for speakers. And these larger organizations, we've talked about it previously on this show, um, will invite you out but not pay you. But the reason why people are coming to this conference is not because your organization has a stellar reputation, if I can talk, but because X, Y, and Z speaker is keynoting or X, Y, and Z speaker is coming to speak. Um, so Dr. Ross, you noted that you had been in this field for um, almost a little over 25 years. Have you dealt with that? Have you come across that? And how do you encourage some of these fresher, newer um, speakers that are going out into the field to make sure that they're getting what they are worth? So um, I think you guys are already doing some of the things I'm going to say as a group. Like when I look at the, the Bibber group um, and I watched, so I'm going to start with this. I was watching um, Marlon Wayans yesterday talk about the movie Respect. And he said um, that he his brother always said that they're talking about Hollywood. You don't wait on the door to open for you. You go and you don't knock on the door and say open it. You kick the door down and make a new door, right? You kick the hinges and you make a new door. I think my philosophy has always been um, build a different system, build a different system. We had a situation um, when I was at one university, I won't mention that university, where I worked really hard to keep um, the funding for my students. And um, I've been at like five, so, you know, <laughs> and um, it got taken away. I worked really hard. And at the point at which I could finally have students, it got taken away. I was devastated. I was so mad. Um, and I went back and I prayed about it. I was like, what do I do? And the thought I had was build a new system. And I went back to my students and I said, we're gonna start our own business. Not only are we gonna start our own business, we're gonna seek our own funding. That year, what was taken away from me was two lines of funding. By the next year, I had eight. And we had a contract with the district for $100,000 of funding. Hello. Build your own system. You don't have to have. <laughs> every student who came through my lab after that had to complete funding. And when that didn't happen for them through the university, external people came and said, can we fund your students? Do it, Build your own system. Sometimes you got to do it yourself. That's how I feel. Sometimes you have to be like, I don't need this. I, I'll tell you a situation. I had a job interview. I had a job at a major institution. I already had the job, but it was a non-tenure track position. The white people had tenure track and all the black women had non-tenure track and we were treated really badly. It was like a term position. And I remember sitting in a meeting and a man who I respected looked at me and used me as an example and said, 
I'm tired of these people, of these students, these new faculty members not having tenure track positions. And he looks at me, he goes, I'm sure she's tired of it too. When he pointed me out, I was like, I'm done. I, I don't need this. I'm done. I went into my office. I looked up a different university. I applied for the job, a competitive one, got the job. And then when I got ready to turn it down, the dean at that university, who was a black woman, pulled me in the office and said, I know you need this to negotiate where you are. Go use it. I'm going to act like I didn't hear you turn it down. I want to see you prosper. I did. Got a match offer and more money. Because I was like, and I got a tenure track position. I was like, I'm not going to go through this. So build your own system. Be like, I don't need this. Go do a different one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's it. I just finished watching The Chair on Netflix. Yeah, I've seen the comments about it. Haven't heard yet. (laughs) That exact story. That exact story is the storyline of the the other black non-tenure track professor who is has the best lectures and then this white man being like no she doesn't deserve it because my wife didn't get it back in the day okay (laughs) so if any of you are in academia you want to see the treacherous of academia especially for people of color and and women um the chair on netflix is great it's only six episodes you're going to finish it in like two days so just be prepared for that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that is the story of so many people, you know, and when you're talking about income inequality and um, the different aspects of that, we're not just talking about wealth and, and your salary. We're also talking about how you are treated in that position or how you even get to that position and move up in that position or in that institution, right? And so one of, one of the things CNN, uh, back in June, and this is when I knew I wanted to do this episode, but back in June, they compared the income inequality between white individuals and Black individuals. So the median income for Black households in 2019 was rough, roughly 60% of the median income of white households. White households had an average of 76000 a year. Black households had an average of 45,000 a year. We also look at the um, unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate of white individuals is 5.3%, where the unemployment rate for black individuals was 9.7%. And then also looking at the, the poverty. So the poverty rate for black Americans in 2019 was more than doubled of white Americans. White Americans were 7.3%. Black Americans were 18.8%. So when you look at those numbers from a larger scale, and we say ADA can save the world if done correctly. Um, and I want to hear from, from all three of you, looking at those startling numbers and looking at those differences, how do we think that ADA can help reduce that gap between both white and black individuals, but also just all BIPOC individuals as a whole. And uh, Dr. Margot, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I think that's a really, really complicated question. Um, I'm not sure that it can be answered within an X amount of time. Um, I do think that ABA, the phrase ABA can change the world or go save the world with ABA, I think that's a a huge undertaking, or at least I've I've come to understand and learn that it's a huge undertaking that we might in some ways be setting ourselves up for failure. Um, I like to say we can improve the world, we can make the world a better place in whatever field we're working in. And I think when it comes to income inequality, there is a lot that we can do. And 
I think the issue maybe is that we don't really know these data. We don't really realize that a lot of BCBAs, um, at least that I've come in contact with, really don't know that ABA can actually be applied to so many areas of life in general outside of um, you know, the autism uh, subfield, so to speak. Um, so because of that, because we don't know that we can make those differences, I think there's that, that's the first barrier. We don't have enough information or it's not at least spread out enough. It's not talked about enough. The ways that we can apply our science to improve um, income inequality between, you know, different, gen whether it's gender, race, or um, anything like that. So I think that the first thing that we can do is educate ourselves um, and really learn a little bit more. But to do that, you have to already be interested. You have to kind of have resources and connections that are um, interested in that area or be exposed to that area. So I think one of the things that we talked about in our paper is we think that, you know, uh, we propose that institutions really ought to look at income inequality and um, socioeconomic disadvantage as an area of confidence for behavior analysts where we are really intentionally planning because income inequality affects not just like individual people within the community, it can impact an entire community for generations. And you might think that you're okay, you're safe, you have that BCBA job, pandemic hits, all these things happen to you and all of a sudden you are now, you know, you don't have a home, you don't, you can't get a job, you know, your situation can quickly change. Um, and so I think it's important for us to look at this issue as our issue and an area where we need to start educating ourselves. Um, and we can start at the organizational level, at the institutional level. Um, I think we do have a lot of people who are interested. Obviously, we're, we're interested in that work um, and, you know, personally and professionally. But I think expanding that network, getting people turned in on and into working with this population and really taking the time to understand how we can apply our principles um, is another thing that we can do. So there, there, there's a lot we can do, but we really have to start not only, you know, top to bottom, bottom up as well, so that we can really meet halfway uh, and be able to, to have effective change. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Dr. Maya? Yeah, Dr. Uh, Maru Wyatt really hit on this. I, it's such a big thing. You know, there's not one right answer. I wish there was, of course. Um, but one, one lens you can take to look at that issue um, is kind of the lens that we took um, together in our research to, um, at Western Michigan University through um, literacy. And really what we focused on in our in that article also was um, so many correlations between low literacy, uh, between economic disadvantage and academic performance and earnings, low earnings, low health, um, obesity challenges, and just academic underachievement really due to um, seeing kids with low literacy um, in that in the third grade to fourth grade area or part of their life where they transition transition from learning to read to reading to learn. And when they're having those issues um, with being able to read proficiently, we're really seeing that affect um, potentially finishing school, dropout rates, getting gainful employment. And there's a really great article that we reference a lot. Um, I believe it's Don Hernandez, no relation to myself, through the Annie Casey Foundation, um, did uh, research on many of the correlations between proficient reading and future outcomes overall. And um, really finding that one of the ways out of economic disadvantage is through education um, and having more opportunities and not necessarily just academic education, but being educated 
being able to read an article um, about some of the research that we're mentioning, some of the statistics we're mentioning, some of the strategies with respect to negotiating and bargaining for higher payment, um, also with respect a lot to do with also health literacy. Um, and so really literacy being a big piece and one way we can tackle um, and focus on economic disadvantage and improving outcomes for um, people in those situations. Didn't even think to make the connection of reading proficiency and then how does your income, you know, or even this future perspective, right? Obviously, you know, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, yeah, you know, school just wasn't for me. So they had to seek outside sources to to become better readers or be more academically sound, right? Um, but how did that affect where they are? today in terms of income, job, perspective, wealth, X, Y, and Z, employment status. Um, so that's a great, great point. Um, Dr. Denise? Yeah, I'm gonna, first of all, I'm so impressed with Maya and Margo and how articulate and poised they are. I'm just really excited about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sitting here. It's a great this. advisor moment. Great it feels moment. like so awesome <laughs> to see them. I love this. So, um, but I, I'm gonna agree with kind of what both of them said and particularly with what Maya said, I think they're both right. So what, I'll just take Wisconsin as an example. Wisconsin is considered the worst place to raise a black child in the country. They imprison more black men than any other state. Um, they have, and these are widely known facts. This is not something that I'm just inferring. But when you go back and look at the data in Wisconsin, almost 75% of black children in Wisconsin are poor and low income. There were school districts in Wisconsin where 7% of the kids read for black children read proficiently, 7%. If you don't read proficiently, to quote what Maya was saying, you're four times less likely to graduate. If you don't read proficiently by third grade, you're four times less likely to graduate from high school than other kids. And it's worse if you're black or Latino, and it's worse if you're poor. You look at those data and you know there's a connection. People who are in prison often have had difficulty with literacy. It's a predictor of certain types of behavior. Behavior now, analysts have developed um, interventions, and if nothing else, the science of behavior has a lot of tools that have helped kids learn to read nationally, and yet they're not adopted, you know, they're not used in a widespread way, and there is a reason, there are lots of reasons for that, but I think that at the very least, the dissemination of those in a way that strengthens teaching can in, in, impact what happens. I think if people are going to say, I said this, I spoke at uh, Wisaba last week, and I just said, if people are gonna be anti-racist, if you read a book about being anti-racist and your attitude changes, but the kids don't learn to read, you have done nothing. What have you done? So your child leaves that room and still can't read and goes through the school, school cycle and then drops out, but you've become anti-racist, how have we done anything? So I just think that it's critical and I just think it's a critical piece of what happens. And of course it does not explain everything, but it does explain options. If you lose a job, like Margot said, but you can go somewhere else, you have more flexibility, but not if your only support system is in your community and you can't leave it because you don't have the ability. So you have to be exposed widely to lots of things, have to have healthy food, right? Have to, there are all kinds of reasons why people end up where they end, where we end up, but often it's because of a lack of um, support. So if something does happen, like Margot was saying, you're like one paycheck away and you just don't have anything to support it where somebody else can go get a job somewhere else or have some, some wider experiences. So I 
I think I'm, I'm a fan of how we can use reading. I think it's a crisis. I think it's a national crisis that we don't have enough kids of color who read proficiently and that can change. Wow, 7% read yep. proficiently. In Wisconsin, 7%. in Wisconsin, 11% of the Black children in Wisconsin read proficiently. That's the average. Like all of re- all Wisconsin. the states. All the state and in the United States, in every region of the United States, the average reading for economically disadvantaged kids is around 20% all over the country. There's a, there's a correlation there that, that needs to be dealt with. No, definitely. Um, there is a, um, I'm, I'm thinking like precision teaching, family acceleration charts, like just all these different ABA strategies. And I'm like, you know, especially in the Black community, we talk about how can we use ABA to help our community um, and not just the ASD Black community. Um, I'm thinking of these kids, you know, if if we are here working on our reading and our math skills, right, because those are the two that people always talk about, reading proficiency and, and the ability to do math. There is a course or an organization, it's not FIT in Florida, but I think it's Fit Learning. I just learned about this a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. But Fit Learning utilizes standard acceleration charts and precision teaching, specifically on um, reading and math skills with neurotypical children, and not necessarily with those who are on any type of neurological disorder spectrum or anything like that. And so um, you're able to go, you're able to open up this fit learning center in that community, and then they work on reading and math skills. And we talk about social justice in ABA and how we have these tools. And like you were saying, you can read a book all day on anti-racism, but if you're not teaching your kids or the students that you're working with to be anti-racist, then what are you doing? What impact are you really having? There's intent and then there's impact. And so really looking at how do we expose more BIPOC behavior analysts who do care about these issues in the community, how ABA and different strategies such and organizations such as Fit Learning into those communities, particularly I hope they're headquartered in Wisconsin, they're probably not, but it was that being such a low number, how do we expose more BIPOC individuals to how ABA can be utilized in different areas and how we can then bring that back to the communities that are suffering the most. What are your guys' kind of perspective on that? I can start with um, one thing we wrote about in our chapter specifically was partnering with other um, service providers in the community. I don't think it's possible for us to do it on our own as ABA change agents. Um, We really need to partner with other organizations in the community who have a similar mission. I know specifically, for instance, in my area, um, in Kalamazoo, we have the Kalamazoo Literacy Council, which we partnered with um, for my research during the PhD program. Um, there are, especially when it comes to reading and math, um, school programs associate, affiliated with specific schools and districts. There are community programs specifically looking at this. And a lot of these organizations are siloed in a sense where they're all wanting to target and um, target a certain issue, but they're, they could come to come and work together 
um, and really use best practices, share resources, share, you know, not just um, research, but also um, lo locations, um, volunteers and whatnot. And I really think the more that we can work with other service providers interested in these areas, the more effects that we can, the larger the effect we can have on improving this area. I think that uh, we have to look at some of the community-based interventions um, that are out there. I think for us to be able to have impact, we really have to make an impact for the children and the parents in the community and get them on board um, with what we're doing. I know that, you know, I, I, I think behavior analysis in general, we don't always have the best reputation um, in some, you know, spaces, but I do think this is something to work on. Um, I think we have to really approach our efforts within the communities with um, humility. And we have to come in not ready to solve the problem, but ready to understand the context and understand what's happening and understand the issue and address the issue based on the needs that already exist in the community, because there are lots of needs that exist that we really aren't aware of, especially, you know, the farther away you go from now you're working on your master's and your doctorate, you're actually moving so far away from, you know, a person who is in this community who is from a low income background that you will have difficulty understanding what they might be experiencing unless you've been in that situation or you're taking the time to really understand what's happening. Um, so I think as much as, you know, our science pushes, we can change the world, we can improve the world. I think a way to bring this science to the community is uh, go to the community and be a part of it and also bring someone from the community to learn about the science so that they can go back into their community and have that impact. Um, and I think this is something that Dr. Ross um, worked with us on um, and really making sure we're going into the communities where we were serving, we're understanding what's happening, we're collaborating with the teachers, we're understanding what their needs are first. Um, and we're really making those connections priority as opposed to going in and saying, hey, I'm ready for I'm here with the science. I'm going to save your community. I'm here to teach all your kids to read. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I think, you know, getting people turned on to the science and really understanding what it can do. Um, a lot of times I think people are just not informed. If you're not informed, you can't really make a good critical, you know, you can't make a good decision or a decision that might move you to the next level. Um, so get into the community bring people from these communities, low-income community, BIPOC individuals onto the science, especially because we know, when you look at the data from uh, the BACB, we know that um, you know, BIPOC individuals are not really practicing. Uh, you know, in terms of percentage-wise, it's disproportionate, right? There are more um, white women practicing than there are other you know, BIPOC women or BIPOC individuals in general. So I think we really have to make it our mission to bring those individuals onto the science um, I also think we have to think about policies. We have to somehow get in on policy, especially right now, because we're in a place where, yes, the pandemic just happened, all this stuff, you know, we just had a whole election and a lot of changes are happening. So I think there is a good opportunity for us to get in on policy and start making changes that will actually last a long time in terms of what are districts doing as far as curricula? How are they training, you know, teachers? What kind of continued education opportunities are there? What conferences can teachers attend? And all these things that are going to have an impact within communities and teachers in our communities and parents in our communities. The other piece of it is, of course, we have to, I think, 
deal with the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of the individuals in the communities we deal with, especially if they're in BIPOC communities, they may not have opportunities for, for example, transportation, where they can take their child to that program that you developed at that university, right? So you really have to think through what that looks like for that family. So needs assessments are really, really important because you have to understand what do these individuals need? And to do that, you have to go to the community and find out what do they need for them to be able to successfully access um, these services that other individuals can access. I, there's lots we can do, but those are some that, you know, and we talk about in, in the paper as well. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Ross, did you want to say something? Yeah, I want to give an amen to everything they said. I'm loving this. But um, <laughs> I um, I think that I agree with everything. I'm thinking of a few things. One of them is, I always say, know your why. Like, know why you want to do what you want to do, because it sticks with you through everything you do. And I think don't underestimate the impact of the desire to help communities that are, you know, disenfranchised, even if you don't know how to do it yet, right? And so sometimes people will go in and they can just help like one child. That one child down the road is gonna have a different life because of what you did. So you may not be able to help a whole school system, may not be able to help. And I'm, I'm not a fan of like, oh, let's just help one. I do wanna see the whole system dismantle and change. <laughs> but I also have learned um, from my own experiences when I thought I failed, the many times I thought I failed at systems approaches you know, now I see those kids that I thought I failed because they could read, they're going on to college, right? And so the, I thought I failed because I didn't understand how to do it, but try. Does that make sense? Just try, because it's worth for that one child to do it. If you can just teach one child who couldn't read to read, it makes a difference. Having said that, um, I think that part of the reason that we run into the issues, it's a cycle. There are not enough BIPOC students going to college in programs that do this. And so we have to partner with like universities that serve those populations. Um, and so white, predominantly white institutions right now are crying out, you okay, <laughs> predominantly white institutions are crying out right now for students, right? But the reality is that like HBCUs are having over-enrollment of students. My undergraduate, my alma mater's Spelman College had about 11,000 applications for probably a thousand spaces in the past couple of years. They've had all these applications. Why are we not, why aren't ABA programs going and partnering with them? Other programs, our University of Michigan just did a public health um, program with Spelman where they go to school for three years and then come to, or go to school for four years and come and do a year at Western at University of Michigan or two years. And they end up with their master's in public health, but they set that up. Dillard has one with Western Michigan, but not their psych department. So like, why are we not thinking if we're gonna impact, we need to be training at a much earlier level, right? Um, and the last thing I'll say about that is I think that what convinces people that what we do is effective is what Margo was saying. We spend time in the communities. We spend time in the schools. We're there. And we do models that show them people come into contact with the consequence of this, right? They access the reinforcement. They're like, oh, this works. Let's do it again. We have to do effective work in those places. And then that's how it spreads. Um, I totally agree with policy. I think it's really important. This is where I think ABA has fallen down in this area is that once we develop something, it becomes a quick fix. So nobody sticks with the science behind it. So suddenly direct instruction is a quick fix. Precision teaching is a quick fix. There's a whole science behind that. That's what keeps it moving. If we just stick with the quick, it becomes a fad that goes away. So we want to be training teachers to be understand the science of behavior. And maybe we don't call it that all the time because it kind of has its own history with them. But they need to understand what good teaching is. 
So that becomes what they do versus this quick fix. I can do DI, I can do precision teaching. No, we want you to understand the why behind it. So yeah, that's what I, those are my thoughts. I think that the way the field is going, I was just talking to uh, Dr. Richard Spate, great man, so wise, like, wow, right. Um, But I, I can go about him all day. But um, he was saying that we have forgotten the science of behavior because where the money is, is with autism, right? And these quick fixes. He actually is not a fan of ACT. Um, I am. So we had a great conversation, but he was like, listen, ACT is, is a quick fix. You know, it's not necessarily the, the science of behavior. And so when we are going into universities, particularly the university that I teach for, Wayne State University in um, Detroit, Michigan. We are focused on autism. And as I'm redoing my slides, I'm like, no, like, let me give them some OBM examples. Let me give them some health and fitness examples, some policy examples, some reading examples, things like that, because most of my students do not want to work in autism at all. They want to do mental health counseling. They want to do addiction. They want to do the issues that are affecting their community the most. But if we are only teaching them how to apply this strategy to this child who has autism that's three, four years old, how are we then still building the science of behavior and not just the quick fix of what works with the ASD community? Um, And I think as, I think universities are the very first stop in doing that. You know, um, I know the SME process at the BACB and everybody that they have at the table, but then how that is actually manifested in practice looks completely different than what the intent is supposed to be. Um, and so I definitely think universities have the very, are the very first stepping stone in making sure that we're not forgetting the science to then be able to apply this to, you know, income inequality or reading proficiency or, you know, health and fitness or OB, more OBM type things. Um, and where do we get lost in that? You know, I just really want to know, because um, I w- the way I was raised in ADA, it was all about autism. And now mm-hmm. that I'm really understanding the science, I want to know, how did we take such a big shift away from the science and just understanding it in a more general form to we are now what I think the statistic is 85 or 86 percent of our field works in autism um so how do we get there and how do we shift back <laughs> Adrian what school did you go to what um for my grad for yeah. grad school Wayne State okay so I'm going to say we did a paper with Brandy Fontenot um a few years ago where we looked at all of the um the, tri- the, the publication trends in behavioral journals around economically disadvantaged children. And what we saw was that um, federal policy funding had a lot to do with the direction people went in or what we think was happening. And that, I'm not saying that's what it is happened, has happened, but that's what we kind of inferred. I got that idea actually from a colleague at Western Michigan when I asked the same question you're asking. Someone who'd been in the field for a long time, I said, why are we only focused on autism? Why have they gone away from this? And he said, it has had to do with funding. So in the 60s, when JABA first started in 1968, you saw a lot of emphasis on children of color, 
economically disadvantaged children, Betty Hart, Todd Risley, the work they did in, in the publications they did, there was a lot in there. But it was because that was right around the civil rights movement. It was the time that there was funding for it, right? And then you saw it shift to like disabilities around the time that IDEA, the um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act came out. And then you saw that emphasis shift to disabilities. And then you saw it shift to autism more. And so I think a lot of it has to do with like insurance funding, the where, where funding comes from. So it is hard for people to enter into an area where there isn't money. So that's what I think. Yeah, I think that's fair in a way, right? That's where the money is. That's where, you know, business and things like that. And, and I'm curious, what I want to see is after the last two years, because 2020 was a whole year and we're in the middle of 2021, I really have to separate. The last two years are the same year for me. I don't know if anybody else feels that. <laughs> the last two years yes. are the same year. Um, but I want to see if you if you are interested right in kind of updating that that article where is the shift now um in in research and the publications and the things that are people are getting because yes there there is money in in DEI and kind of spreading and opening up some barriers but there's not as much money as it was for the disabilities and and ASD uh, areas of focus I want to see in, in five, 10 years, what is, what's that shift, if there's a shift at all. Um, so I'll hit you up later on that one, or if you're already thinking about it. <laughs> we'll have to see. But um, you guys pretty much summarize all of this in your chapter in the Social Justice in Applied Behavior Analysis. So um, what can people kind of look forward to in reading that chapter? I know in reading the book, it touches on so many different areas, um, and I really, really love it. Um, but what can they kind of be looking for when they read that chapter? Um, I would say when they read our chapter, they can look forward to some tips for where to start. Um, and I think maybe understanding the problem and the issue in general, getting a better understanding of income inequality and how it impacts all the different areas that it impacts um, children and adults who are in those communities. And then where to start as a behavior analyst. Um, you know, we are right now, especially if you're in the clinical world, you're serving a lot of individuals from low income communities. And it's been my experience that most of the time people don't ask questions at the beginning where they don't get to understand the context of their you know, clients. Um, and I think that's so important to understand who you're serving, where they, they're coming from and what their needs are, because that's going to impact the rest of your treatment. If you don't account for it at the beginning, it's gonna be a lot more difficult to try to retroactively go back. So I think they'll look for, they can look forward to understanding income inequality, understanding what our barriers are as behavior analysts and then what to do um, you know, moving forward, now that you know, what are the steps, what are some things that you can do to begin to really, you know, impact the, the clients and the community that you serve um, in a more effective and culturally humil um, humble and understanding way. Awesome. You know, we love to leave our audience with solutions and resources. Um, and uh, Dr. Maya and Dr. Denise, you guys both spewed out some resources throughout um, the show. I was trying to write them down. Um, but where can people go outside of the book, um, previous articles, prominent people who are also doing this research, 
we love social media for information. If there's any, you know, Facebook groups or anything like that, that people can also look into when wanting to learn about this topic. So um, I think other people within our field whose work I would look at and been outside of our field. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts about that too. Okay. I think the work of Charles Greenwood and the people at University of Kansas on Juniper Garden Children's Project has been going on for decades and it's still very good. That's really important work to look at and read. Um, if I were going to look at instruction, I'd go and look at the work from Teachers College and Doug Greer. I'd go look at that, a book called Designing Teaching Strategies and anything they are publishing um, is really good. They work in schools. I think that um, the Kent Johnson and the work he's doing at Morningside is also very useful. I'm sort of looking at school-based work. Outside of this, just to know about it and to think about how to treat clients, I would look at the American Psychological Association's um, Committee on Socioeconomic Status, and they recently put out a statement where they talk about how you work with um, communities that are economically disadvantaged and what kind of the guidelines should be. So I think that's very useful. They have a lot of resources for schools and things like that. So that would be my suggestion. The University of Kansas does this great research, <laughs> like one of the top research um, universities, I think, um, especially for ABA, but also outside of ABA. So I'm not surprised that you said the University of Kansas. Um, and the other thing in, that you said was the American Psychological Association uh, put out that statement a few months ago. Um, and people in the ABA world was like, well, is the BACD going to put something out or anything like that? And we think about the functionality of the BACB and what they really do versus um, maybe some differences in the APA. As we're kind of moving forward, and this will be one of my last questions, do you think that our field needs to come out with better guidance? of working with um, populations that are historically marginalized and where should they look for that? Is that the BACB's job? Is that the organizations like BABA, APIABA, you know, ABAI, things like that? Um, and anyone can answer this question. Dr. Wayu, I, I see a smirk. <laughs> I don't know if you wanna hit that. And also uh, Dr. Hernandez. Um, I, these are my personal thoughts, like I said before, um, I do think we should um, come up with some guidelines for how to work with these individuals, the same way that we've come up with guidelines to, um, in general, treat the, uh, you know, the populations that we're serving. I know that right now there have been some um, uh, updates in terms of ethics, um, our, our code of ethics, so I think that's a good place to start and really outlining and maybe being more specific and um, and I don't know if that's exactly the right place, but that's a good place to start. And there's some research about, you know, how to work with individuals who are from other cultures, how to be culturally sensitive. What are some guidelines for working with individuals from, you know, other cultures in, a, in an ethical um, and sensitive way? So I think that's an, a good example. I know um, Dr. Matsuda, Kozue Matsuda had a really good article out there. Um, so I would read some of her work. Um, I think she has put out some really interesting work um, recently. And there's a lot that's coming out right now that's interesting. So yes, I think that we should look at guidelines for how to work with individuals who are from low income uh, you know, communities. But I also think we really do need to shift our focus on literacy as well as a part of that. Um, and really be a little bit more intentional about how we can do that and, and who can supervise. Because I think people don't know that someone has that experience and they can't go to them for supervision. 
they're not likely to make that response effort to do the research and look for them and apply to that university. So in some ways, our institutions also have a responsibility um, to create those opportunities to hire not just individuals who work within the autism world, but also who are working in these other significant social areas so that our BCBAs and our behavior analysts, we can all get exposure um, to these opportunities. Because if we don't, you know, like Dr. Ross said, if we don't break down the door and create those opportunities, we're not going to have them. Um, and as I think as BIPOC individuals, as women of color and black women um, in this field, I do think, um, and I've learned this, you know, from working with Dr. Ross, I think we have a responsibility you know, to really move the field forward and have an impact on, on our community, we have to understand our why and also move in within that purpose. And I think by doing that, you know, from that institutional approach and our personal approach, we might be able to really address some of these questions that are still unanswered in terms of how do we, you know, what are guidelines? What is step one to, you know, what is our task analysis? What does that look like? Um, so I think that those might be some ways that we can uh, we can start that and get that going. Awesome. Dr. Hernandez, did you have um, something to add to that? I was just, I, mean, I think Margot covered it perfectly. Um, she hit so many solid points on areas that we can address this from, but just to add also from the institution standpoint, you know, we were blessed to work with Dr. Ross in practicum settings um, where we get to work directly with starting um um, starting lab sites from the ground up, starting practicum sites in the ground up, um, getting buy-in by starting in a single classroom, and then being able to have positions uh, where we get to work with the whole school system. And really institutions, um, as we're seeing more of interest, more publication um, in social justice issues, more faculty mentors having these opportunities or creating opportunities for their graduate students um, so they can have this practice and experience actually implementing um, our principles of behavior in these settings. And so then when, when they're ready to, when they graduate, when they're ready to go out, they can be change agents in um, on their own and be leaders and future mentors to future grad students and so on and so forth. And which, but I hope that Dr. Hernandez and Dr. Uweyu, that you guys do that <laughs> because I would be a lucky student to be able to learn from you guys. Um, just hearing you guys speak on the podcast, I have my my brain is going to, with so many different ideas. So, um, Dr. Ross, thank you for you know being their mentor and advisor and um, gaining that access as well because you have just blessed the community so much in so many different well, ways. I am so grateful for them. I'm so proud of them. I'm also really proud of the work you guys are doing in Biva. And just I wanted to encourage you when you talked about like what can we do. I think the articles, like that special issue of BAP that Denisha, that Denisha did, that um, the books I see coming out, the work you're, you're going to be president of it, but like, I just think mm -hmm. you guys are kicking the doors down. I wanted to say before I didn't say is that I don't really do anything on my own. These I have a lot of Black women who mentored me, and I've been grateful for that. And I hope that that will continue, that there will be more Margos and Adrians, and you know, that there'll be people out there. There aren't enough of us in the field. Um, and so I hope that, that we're out able to reach out. I was going to say, too. I hope too that we will take seats at tables and have voices that shift conversations within our field. So if there's a chance to be in a leadership role, go be yourself and be in that role and shift what happens, shift the conversation. Um, and so I think that that's a way to be, remain relevant as well. Yeah, definitely. I think I think Baba's underline 
like mission is if we don't see it, create it and we'll do it better. <laughs> I think that's just kind of what, you know, our, our like secret mission is. Um, and we love seeing, seeing the impact of that. Um, and I was going to say, feel free, you know, Bible call for papers are going to come out soon. would love to see this there just to put that little seed in there. <laughs> but I think that, you know, so many people um, need to hear this because I also just think at a, as a, at a business level and those who are able to make those decisions the impact that they would have on a larger community by just making sure that, you know, you have the experience scales, or it's even, of course, it's a thought in your mind that there could be some inequality going on because they're a woman or they're a black woman. And then, you know, we didn't even talk about um, meritocracy and how meritocracy can lead to um, income inequality, that's something that I'm diving into um, as I'm doing my leadership development trainings and things like that. And how do we combat that? And that's a whole different episode. But I really want to make sure and really the motivation of having you all and seeing that is that it, it's just a thought in your mind and that can change a generation. You know, you don't know what that extra $750 a paycheck can do for that family and then being able to afford the fit learning if there are, you know, reading uh, proficiency issues or math issues. And then from there they were in fit learning and now they're able to get X, Y, and Z job or go on to college and things like that. We really don't understand how one decision can affect an entire family and an entire generation. Um, so Dr. Weyu, Dr. Ross, Dr. Hernandez, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, where can our audience find you guys? Where can they hear more? Um, are you guys doing more research in this? I hope so. <laughs> What's next? Well, I think we just wrapped up our article um, for the special edition of um, BAP that just was just submitted. I was out of town when it was just getting finished up. So I'm looking at everyone like, yes, like we're good. Um, I know Marco, so Marco and I have been uh, chatting on the side through our, through the Zoom chat about working on another publication together. Um, so we're going to be working on things coming up. And I know we're also um, each working on publishing our dissertations as well. Coming out soon. <laughs> I can't wait to read those. <laughs> those are going to be great. Is it on income inequality as well? Or something totally different? They're mostly, they're on literacy, but in some ways, again, we're really approaching that, that. Topic, uh, you know, income inequality and you know, making the play field a little bit more even by empowering individuals. So, yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this is not the last time you guys are going to hear from me just to put that out there. Good. Um, I love looking forward to that. <laughs> and Adrienne, if we can support you at all as you move into your role, let us know, okay? If we can be yeah. supportive oh, yeah. and cheer you, on, oh, yeah. you on. So yeah. Yeah, it's actually um I, I feel very lucky and blessed. Um both myself, Denisha, and another black BCBA, Oasha Hightower, are all in the same uh PhD program at the University mm -hmm. of Northern Colorado. So Good. we have like our a little mini like little community there and support system I'm actually gonna get off now and be like and these syllabuses, syllabuses. 
<laughs> you know, just to orientate myself. But absolutely, um, you know, we that's a whole nother episode that we can have is just the BIPOC uh, doctoral experience um, in westernized academia. <laughs> you know, higher ed there. So I I might be hitting you back up for that, for that episode, but thank you guys so much. We will link the, um, in our show notes, we're going to link any LinkedIn that people can find you at, or, um, of course the social justice and ABA books. So everyone can read their chapters and then, um, the BAP special edition series. We will definitely link that if that's able to be linked. Yes. Um, yes. so we will definitely link those and I'll, I'll get that from Denisha. <laughs> uh, but thank you guys so much for coming on the show and thank you for doing everything that you do in our community. Um, I can't wait to see what's next from all three of you. Thank you. Thank you for right, having you. Thank you. Thank you.